Well, if you keep that part of the Bible open, and we have a little note on the structure of the sermon this morning, and you'll see that there's a text that I'm taking from it, which is verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'd help us to understand what it is that you have done that the law could not do. Help us to understand how the flesh has led to a weakening of the law. Help us understand, Father, your great salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So often today we have the celebrities declare in their kind of vacuous pomposity that celebrities have and also in their conspicuous affluence they declare I'm not religious but I'm spiritual it's a it's an important thing that they are spiritual but what is that spirituality that they have what do they mean by spiritual what are they claiming what is it to be spiritual what is spirituality Christians believe in the Holy Spirit. Are Christians spiritual like that? Uh, Some people are attracted to being spiritual or to the New Age religions of spirituality because of amoral spirituality. Religion without morality. No do's, no don'ts, no judgments, no condemnations. All you've got to do is just kind of meditate and levitate and regurgitate, regenerate, be natural, be, be yourself, whatever it is that you are. Find in your inner self the goddess or the god that is truly you trying to break its way free. You can still cheat, you can still make a fast buck, you can lie to your boss or you can lie with his wife. But you do it in a loving, kind, relaxing, peaceful, stress-free way. And so you are a spiritual person, amoral. Because it's not immoral, because for them there is no right and wrong. There's no such thing as right and wrong. All you've got to do is just be true to yourself, to your inner spirit. Even some so-called Christians will follow what they feel is the Spirit's leading, irrespective of the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, I, I know of the Pentecostal minister who left his wife uh, to commit adultery because the Spirit told him to do so. You follow the Spirit irrespective of the Ten Commandments. On the other hand, we have people who promote an unspiritual morality. Uh, Sometimes it's within Christianity and the church. Sometimes it's just old-fashioned humanism. But it's morality untouched by God. All rules, all regulations with powerful censorious judgment, be it over brown rice or sugar or meat or or over things as seriously as back lives mattering or over republicanism or royalty. There's a powerful judgmentalism at work in our society today and in the social media, very powerful judgmentalism that brings people, famous people, into public exposure and shame and 
statues of yesterday's heroes toppling down, being pulled over. Be it the, the left-wing radicals or be it the right-wing radicals and conservatives, it makes no difference. If morality, it is morality without any reference to the Spirit of God. Now this morning's passage, this morning's passage from Romans 8 is all about the Spirit. But it's expressed in terms of the Spirit and flesh. So I want to take a few moments just to clarify what the Bible means about flesh in particular and the spirit as well, for these two terms are contrasted to each other. Uh, I've put some notes there on the outline. I'll come to them in a moment. But the New Testament keeps on seeing these two things, spirit and flesh, opposed to each other. But before we look at those, let me clarify what the world means by these two terms. For most people, you see, the spirit is the inner self, and the flesh is the outer body. My spirit's not growing much, but now in lockdown, my flesh is growing magnificently, or rather less than magnificently, as I live in that kind of terrible triangle between the couch and the refrigerator and uh, the bed. And so the, the capacity for growing, well, that's the flesh, you see. It's the stuff that's hanging around. The spirit is the, the person, the inner being. That's how the world speaks of it. And so the works of the spirit are seen as the immaterial things like uh, love to be positive, like lust to be negative. Whereas the works of the flesh are the physical things like gluttony or adultery. But the New Testament is quite different to that. For in the New Testament the works of the flesh include, if you think in Galatians 5, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy. We would call them the, the works of the Spirit. They're internal things, aren't they? Envy and jealousy and dissensions and rivalries. But the Bible calls them, the New Testament calls them the works of the flesh. So what, what is meant by this term spirit and flesh? Uh, our translation that uh, Vic read for us so kindly a few moments ago, uh, the New International Version, I think it was, uh, instead of using the word flesh, tries to help us by talking about it as the sinful nature and doesn't use the word flesh. To try and come to course, in their translation, they know that when you use the word flesh, we will think the wrong things. We will think of physicality. And so they talk about the sinful nature. Uh, the Greek word is flesh. And so the other way around about it is the translation I'm using, which just sticks with the word flesh, but then requires the preacher to explain it to you. Otherwise, we misunderstand what's being said. You see, the spirit refers to God. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The word spirit itself is, is the Hebrew word and the Greek word for breath. For God breathes life into us. And if you're breathing, you're alive. And if you stop breathing, you're dead. There are more technical descriptions of what involves death or not. But generally, if you're not breathing, you're dead. And if you are breathing, you're still alive. And that life, God breathes into us. And so the spirit is of God and of breath and of life. 
And the life God gives is an eternal life, and therefore the Spirit also means the age to come. The, the age of the Spirit is the age that started at Pentecost and goes on into eternity. For the age to come is, is heaven, if you like, to put it that way. The flesh, on the other hand, is what is human. But the humans, ever since the times of Adam, are sinful. And so the word flesh comes to mean that which is sinful, that which is under the judgment of God, and therefore that which is dying. So flesh becomes a symbol of sinfulness and death, and of this world, of this age, under the judgment of God, rather than eternal life that God comes to bring. And so, so that translation picks it up as the sinful nature. But it's, it's more than just the sinful nature, it's the sinful world that we're in, the world of rebellion against God. Well, now with that backdrop, let's go to, back to Romans chapter 8. And I've picked on verse 3, the first half of that verse, because it's the summary verse, it's the key verse, it seems to me, of this little passage. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And I want to see two things about it this morning. What the law couldn't do and what God has done. Firstly, what the law couldn't do. This has something of the theme of Romans that we've been looking up to this point. Uh, last week, Todd took us to Romans chapter 7 about the law and sin. For there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The law is of God. I mean, just look back at chapter 7 for a moment with me here. And verse 12, verse 12, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Or you look across to verse 14, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Or verse 16, you see, the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. And that's what Todd was helping us to see last week. The law is okay, the problem is me. Don't blame the law because I have my problems. So if there's nothing wrong with the law, why did God have to do something? What is it that the law couldn't do? Why couldn't the law do what it seemed to promise to do? And the answer's there in verse 3 of chapter 8. Chapter 3, 8, verse 3. Because it is weakened by the flesh. Here in Romans 8, you see what God had to do because the law couldn't do. And the reason the law couldn't do is because it's weakened by the flesh. Now, what does that refer to? Well, you see it in verses 5 to 8, where there's this contrast between living with the Spirit and living by the flesh. For those who walk according to the flesh, according to this world, the sinful human nature, when we walk according to the flesh, look at what we like. Verse 5, we set our minds on the things of the sinful nature, on the things of the flesh. The problem starts in the mind. Our thinking, our planning, our ideas, our hopes, our expectations, the, the things that we entertain ourselves with through Netflix or whatever it is, Stan or whatever it is that you're watching, the things of the flesh. 
and to set your mind on the things of the flesh, verse 6, is death. And verse 7 is quite stark. To set your mind on the things of the flesh is to be hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot submit to God's law. With the result in verse 8, that those who are of the flesh cannot please God. It's a very stark sentence there in verse 8, and it's a terrible challenge to us in verse 7. Once you live in opposition to God, everything is affected by it. Everything's affected by that opposition, and your whole life can become a rejection of God's laws. But it's worse still, because you not only reject God's laws, but you're not any longer able to submit to God's laws. And this is the failure that Todd spoke to us of last week. The frustration of desiring to do good and the failure to achieve your desires to do good. It, it was a very important sermon that we had last week because chapter 7 is such an important passage. Helen and I were sadly not able to be here physically, but we were with us at home, at church, in pyjamas. But we're not in pyjamas here. We have we've been able to achieve our desires and get dressed this time. And so I know it's hard to be watching there, but on the other hand, it's really important that we continue to hear God's word. And we heard it last week so well to hear from chapter 7, that we have this desire to do good, but our, our pattern of life is not the same as our desires. That take telling lies. You think you can stop, but deceit becomes the very pattern of the way in which we relate. I had a, a young man who used to come and see me at our ch previous church. He, he often missed church, just turned up for the tea and coffee afterwards. And he didn't believe the Bible and he always wanted to challenge me about it. And he said that uh, he didn't believe that all people were sinful and he didn't believe he was sinful. So I gave him a challenge one week and asked him to spend the week without sinning. And he said, oh yeah, I could do that. And he came back the next week fairly crestfallen and said, well, that, that was a bit too hard, that was ridiculous. And I said, well, you said, you, you know, you're, you don't sin. And I said, well, we'll make it simpler. This week, don't tell a lie for the whole week. He said, oh, yeah, I could do that. That's easy. So I said, good. Anyway, he turned up the next week, very late at the end of supper. And I could see the reality had started to bite into him. So how did you go? He said, it wasn't fair. I said, well, what's not fair? You said you didn't sin, you could always do whatever you wanted to do. We just one just one thing, telling lies, go for a week without telling lies. What what's the problem? He said, Well, you know, I got a new job. I said, Yeah, you told me you had a new job. How's it going? He said, Oh, it's all right, but it's not fair. So what do you mean? He said, Well, I'm working for a real estate company. How can you not tell lies? It wasn't fair. Give me a different context. He said once we rebel, it affects every aspect of life so that we, we cannot submit to God's law. It just becomes impossible for us. 
If that's not bad enough, I'm sorry, but there's worse still here. In verse 8, you see, still worse. Because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We not only fail, you know, our achievements don't match our aspirations, but God's not pleased with us. Let me tell you about a cowboy movie. Kind of a weird one. Where the, the hero came on, handsome, clean, white hat, pats the dog, kind to the little children, you know, all the essential elements to know that this is the good guy. A good team player, cared for his colleagues, uh, did what the boss told him, always looked after his horse, looked after everybody else's horse, always looked after his horse before he looked after himself. All the kinds of little memes that Hollywood gives you to tell you you're supposed to like this person. Um, never let the cattle get away from him. He was the good cowboy in every conceivable way, but of course he was an outlaw and he was part of an outlaw back gang. And so Though he was good, everything he did was to further crime. Everything he did was to actually work evil. And if he was a lousy outlaw, he might have held crime back. But he was such a good outlaw, he advanced crime better than anybody else. If you, if you judge by a particular action, you can think, well, that's a pleasing action. But if the context of your whole life is in rebellion against God then that action is part of the rebellion against God, even though it's good. Nothing he did, even the moral good actions, could please the government. Nothing we do, even the good things, if we're in rebellion against God, we cannot please God. Verse 8 is a very stark verse, isn't it? And it may not be one of your memory verses because it's not kind of nice, warm, fuzzy, but it is a verse to mark in your Bible because it actually lays down, it draws the line in the sand. It says if your mind is the way you live in the flesh, in the sinful nature, then you don't submit to God's law, verse 7. You cannot submit to God's law, verse 7. You cannot please God. Verse 8. See, the law doesn't protect those who walk according to the flesh. The law cannot protect those who work, walk according to the flesh. All the law can ever do is condemn you. It cannot save you. Morality always condemns you, whoever you are, for we're all guilty of failing God's law. Now, here's the problem for the people who want to remove statues. Which ones will you leave standing? Which great man or woman from which period of history ever has been perfect and sinless that you could leave their, their statue standing? See, the great enlightenment uh, moral liberal leader, the author of the Declaration of the Independence in America, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> he was a slave owner. And one of his slaves was a woman for whom he had five children. I mean, the man who turned our convict colony into a city and created for us the idea that Australia would be a nation one day, Governor Macquarie, 
he also was a slave owner. So we're going to pull down his. And it just goes on and on. Martin Luther King. Now he's a man liberating, but of course he was a serial adulterer and a harasser of women. But which one are we going to leave up? In the end, we're going to pull the pyramids down because that was built on slavery by kings who were horrendously tyrants. I mean, there is nothing left in humanity once you start making the moral judgments over other people. This is not to say that I approve of all the statues to all the people who have been put up. I think there have been some pretty ghastly characters that have had statues put up to them. And But where do you draw the line? How can you draw a line? The Bible is so much more realistic than the statue makers or the statue pullers down. For the Bible gives us characters who are terribly flawed, aren't they? Abraham passing off his, his wife, uh, uh, Isaac telling lies to his parents, Jacob whose very name means usurper, uh, Moses who lost his temper and King David, King David, the greatest king in the Old Testament. What a rat! What a complete awful man he was. Not only committing adultery, but then organising for his adulterous woman, to her husband, to be murdered in the battle. I mean, the Bible deals with the reality. Peter, the betrayer of Jesus. Paul, the persecutor and murderer of people. The Bible gives you humans as we really are, all mixed up, all confused, all morally tainted. The law, weakened by our sinful nature, cannot save us. It can only condemn us. But then there's the other side of verse 3. What God has done. So let's turn to see what God has done. It's here in the second half of the verse. What God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Whoa, 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 whoa. Philip, I can't understand that. It's just let's take that sentence again. You got that's a kind of sentence you've got to read several times, isn't it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, well, let's, let's unravel that for a few moments. I don't know, is it possible to put verse 3 up there on that? Because so, it is just so complicated, that verse. There, there, thank you so much. That just may help us if we... You see, it is a complex kind of sentence we've got here. Remember, condemnation comes in two stages. Under the law, the jury declares, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. It condemns me. But under the law, the judge, he consigns me to punishment, death. And so he condemns me. The condemnation of the jury and the condemnation of the judge are slightly different, aren't they? One is saying, yes, you are guilty. The other is saying, yes, you will pay. By sending his own son, God has done something that the law could never do. For he sent his, his own son for sin. Now that was not to go and try sin out. That is to be a sin offering. 
to be a sacrifice for sin. And that's how he condemned sin in the flesh. For he did it by having his son become flesh. But notice the strange way he speaks of God sending his own son. For it speaks of him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in the likeness of flesh, otherwise he wouldn't be truly flesh. But not as sinful flesh, otherwise he wouldn't be sinless and couldn't be a sacrifice for sin. So he's got this kind of clumsy phrase, excuse me saying some part of the Bible is clumsy, but it sounds clumsy to us as we read it, in the likeness of sinful flesh. You see, he had to be sinless to be an offering for others. He had to be sinless to have our sin laid upon him. He had to be sinless to die for us. But he had to be flesh. He had to be one of us to be the sacrifice for our sins. And so God did this thing that the law could never do. See, the law could bring us condemnation, but God brings us something different. God doesn't bring us condemnation. God bears our condemnation for us. The law brings us condemnation. God brings us justification and salvation. But that's not all. What we've seen so far in verse 3 is the summary of Romans chapters 1 to 7, really. Now in chapter 8, there's a new element. A new element that's only been hinted at before in the first seven chapters, but it now is spelt out for us. The hint you saw back last week in chapter 7, verse 6, if you just turn back to chapter 7, verse 6. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The Holy Spirit has only been mentioned four times in the first seven chapters of Romans. And now in chapter 8, he's mentioned 20 times. Each of the references in the first seven chapters are just hinted. Something's got, something, there's something more, there's something more. Chapter 8, this is where we're told where it is. This is the spirit chapter of the book of Romans. And so he spells out now what it means to serve in the new way of the spirit. For look at chapter 8, verse 4. God's purpose in rescuing us was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, not accord, sorry, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What's the righteous requirement of the Lord? Well, that we love God and we love our neighbour. But notice, this spirituality does not ignore the law. The spirituality of the New Testament is not amoral. It's all about the law. For the law is good. The law is spiritual. What's happening now is the law is going to be written on our hearts. As Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31 promised the day would come when God would write his law on the hearts of his people and by his spirit move us to want to do what the law says. The real new age, the age of the spirit, is when people want to do what is right by their own choice for they've been remade spiritually. 
The law was powerless to do this. Because of sin, because of flesh, all the law could do was say, you're wrong. You're guilty. You deserve punishment. But the Spirit of God can do what the law could not do. Because by the death of Jesus, the law has been paid for. And now, new life can start. Law was right, but without the might to do anything. Sin has might, but not the right. But the Spirit has both the right and the might. The right because of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has been paid for and the might to change people. Notice how the second half of verse 4, it's not everybody though, it's those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. And just as we saw in verses 5 to 8, a description of the people of the flesh, so now in the same verses you see the contrast to the people who walk according to the Spirit. Verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, and to set the minds on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. And so Paul is certain that the Christians have the Spirit of Christ within them in verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. You cannot have Jesus without the Spirit of Jesus. You cannot serve Jesus as Lord and Saviour without the Spirit of Jesus changing you to want to acknowledge him. You cannot have God as your Father without the Spirit of God, without the Spirit of Jesus, regenerating you to make you a new person in the Gospel of Jesus. Okay, let's go back to our original observations then about spirituality. If your spirituality is the Spirit of God, you'll not go on with this amoral spirituality and nor will you think spirituality is just being true to yourself because a person who is true to themselves is a person who is true to their sinful nature. That's not going to get you anywhere near God. It's the exact reverse. If your morality is that of the law of God, well, sadly, you will not be spiritual either for that kind of morality just condemns you. But when God sends his Son in the likeness of sinful nature, when God sends his Son to die for us and sends his Spirit to enable us to put to death the old life and start living a new life, well, that's what verses 12 following is about, so you've got to come back next week to hear. I mean, you can read ahead and cheat if you like. It's perfectly all right. But the new life is the new life of the Spirit, which is what the rest of the chapter is about. And so I presume we're preaching on that next week, are we? I'm looking at Stephen. Good. That's a good thing because that's the next exciting episode. Verses 1 to 11 is the beginning of the new birth. 12 onwards tells you what it's going to be like in this new birth. 
And much as I'd like to tell you, that's next week. So today, what we're saying, let's just deal with this first bit, you see, is the law and legalism will never get you with God. What it will do is just identify that you're lost. That's what it does. Morality will always show us up as being either hypocrites or immoral. Because we've all failed. I don't know how you failed. You don't know how I failed. We could sit around and talk about it with each other, but it'd be pretty unedifying, wouldn't it? Right? So, but we all have. By the law, we're just condemned. The law is made weak by our sinfulness. But what the law couldn't do, God has done. Isn't that great news? And he's done it by sending his son to pay the penalty for the law for us and then raise him to new life and pour his spirit into us to make us different. How different? Well, the Bible talks about it. Jesus talks about it as being born again, doesn't he? That's not an American concept. That's actually come straight out of the Bible and out of the mouths of Jesus, out of the mouth of Jesus. We're born again to live a new life, which we're going to hear about next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son. We thank you for your love and kindness and mercy that you would send your Son to deal with our hopeless situation. We thank you for the law that is spiritual and good and true, which identifies the hopelessness of our situation. But we thank you that you didn't leave us just under the law and its condemnation, but you did something even more in sending your son to pay for our sinfulness and to rise to give us new life by your spirit. Help us, Heavenly Father, to rejoice in the knowledge and the experience of your Spirit, bringing us a real change, a true change of life, that we may be people who fulfil the righteous requirements of the law because we have been forgiven and pardoned by our failure to keep the law and because we have your Spirit to transform us. And we do pray, Father, for each other and for our community around about us, that many people at this time, when they've spent so much time at home cleaning up their lives, their, their house, their furniture, their possessions, their cupboards, that they too might come to look again at their lives and look to you to find cleansing. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.